Good morning, everyone. Uh, I normally say it's good to see you. I can't see you, but I hope that you can see me. I hope that you've been able to participate in this uh, unusual event as we continue to live stream some singing and some praying, some words of exhortation and a message. And uh, I want to encourage you uh, after the message is done and after we have the final song, if you're a member, to uh, keep watching as I want to end our time together with some updates and uh, then something of a, of a pastoral prayer. It is the end of March, and obviously we still cannot gather. And in fact, there's much we can't do. Brad uh, alluded to it a few moments ago. We can't be in the same room. We can't celebrate the Lord's Supper. We can't sit under the same roof and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Sunday school classes are out. Uh, covenant group meetings are out. Prayer meetings, at least in the same room, are all out of the question right now. Thankfully, there is much that we can do. So we continue to pray. We continue to exhort one another every day as uh, Chad exhorted us to do that just a few minutes ago. Technology is our friend. And through this live stream, uh, I can take you to the Bible and remind you that wherever you are, God would have you, Christian, do good. Now, maybe you aren't a Christian. I hope that you'll come to believe that you cannot do good in any real sense until you follow Jesus, and I hope to show you why this morning. But if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to make the most of these extraordinary days that we have. This is an unusual season of isolation for many, if not all of us. We need to take advantage of it. Uh, we need to do work on our spiritual house. In 2009, a hundred-year rain fell on Atlanta. It rained so hard that my basement, which had previously been quite dry, flooded. The water never got too high because my basement has a door which let the river out. But after the basement fully dried, I walked through and inspected the damage, and it was clear it needed some work, some new carpet, a fresh coat of paint. Well, think of your life as a spiritual house. Trials like this pandemic present us the opportunity to inspect every room. Ask yourself, what do I need to work on? How do I need to grow? That's how the author of Psalm 85 approached that catastrophe that fell on the people. He asked God in verse 6 of Psalm 85, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Trials reveal our need for revival. So let's not wait for the pandemic to end. Today, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's put on our work gloves and walk through the rooms of our spiritual house. Open doors, look around, see what needs to change. There is a room in your life with Galatians 6.10 written on the threshold. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
This message is entitled, A Prayer for Good. A Prayer for Good. It's a prayer like this. Lord, will you not revive us again that your people may do good in your name? I want us to see this morning why practical acts of kindness, why doing good is so important in the Christian life. Now, before we can appreciate Galatians 6.10, we must understand what the whole letter of Galatians is all about. This is Paul's first letter written to the churches in the region of Galatia. These churches were in cities that Paul and Barnabas visited on Paul's first missionary journey, cities like Antium and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, cities in modern-day Turkey. And Paul is writing to young believers. And one of the problems these young believers face was theological in nature. False teachers had led them to believe that in order to become a Christian, a man must first be circumcised. Circumcision was a minor surgery required of every newborn Jewish male. It was how a parent marked off his child as a citizen of Israel, as a member of God's family. Sometimes you'll see family reunions where everyone wears the same t-shirt to indicate they're all part of the same family, the same tribe. Well, circumcision functioned a bit like that. The Galatian Christians wrestled with how the Old Testament related to their newfound faith. And they decided that God wanted them to continue this practice of circumcision. They reasoned that believing men of age now needed to be circumcised in order to become a citizen of the kingdom of God where Christ is the king. And Paul hated this idea. He argued that in Christ, we are marked off by faith, not by circumcision. He said that to accept circumcision is to gulp down a false gospel. He warned that they were relying on themselves for salvation and not on God. And Paul illustrated his point with a true story from the Bible, the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. And now Sarah was too old to bear a child. God intervened. The Lord promised Sarah that she would bear a son who would become the father of a great nation. Well, this was great news, but Abraham and Sarah struggled to believe it. They were so old, they couldn't believe that they could ever have kids. It seemed too good to be true. Well, they waited. Years passed, no baby. Well, they grew tired of waiting and they took matters into their own hands. Sarah had a servant, a young servant named Hagar, young enough to be a mother. And so Sarah and Abraham decided that Hagar might be the answer they needed. So Abraham sinfully had a baby with Hagar. Now, Abraham should have trusted the Lord and waited. Instead, he took matters into his own hands. He tried to fulfill the promise himself. Abraham should have waited for God to work. And instead, Abraham decided to do the work himself. Well, Paul uses Abraham to explain the problem with circumcision. The question boils down to this. Do you believe salvation 
is God's work? Or, like Abraham, do you take matters into your own hands? Have you concluded salvation is the work of God, but with a little help from you to seal the deal? Well, it's easy to say salvation is all God's work, but if you really think about it, you can better appreciate why the Galatians back then and why people today struggle to believe salvation is 100% the work of God. And many are even offended by this statement, by this idea that God saves sinners through the cross. It's a, a scandalous idea. Now, let me rip an illustration right out of the headlines. Let's say that, that I refuse to take the COVID-19 virus seriously. I partied with my friends. I shook as many hands as I possibly could. I showered even my grandparents with hugs and kisses. A few days later, my grandmother gets sick, really sick, as is happening uh, all over the country, all over the world even. But she gets really, really sick, and let's just say that she died. Well, a few days later, my grandfather and I get sick as well. Now, of course, I'm younger, so I should be okay. But for some reason, my body is really struggling. It's, it's not recovering well at all, and I need to go to the hospital for help. And so does my grandfather. We both need to lie down and get help from a doctor. But we go to the same hospital and there's just one bed left. Well, who should get that bed? Well, I think the answer is obvious, right? It's my grandfather. He's older than me. He's sicker than me. He's in more danger than I am. And not only that, I'm the one who played footloose and fancy free with this virus. It would be a, a moral outrage for me to take the bed. It would be offensive for me to take the bed. But my grandfather refused the demand. He demands that I take it and even runs out of the hospital so he can't take it. Well, do you see the scandal? My grandfather did what I should have done for him. He took my place. And we can all feel it in our bones. Under these circumstances, it would be offensive for me to have taken the hospital bed. Well, the cross of Christ is even more scandalous than that. We are the ones who mocked God. We are the ones who rebelled against God's good authority. We are the ones who lived life our own way. We don't deserve God's kindness. We don't deserve God's help. Jesus does. Jesus is like that, that grandfather, selfless and loving and kind. He deserves the last bed, but instead he took the cross. Jesus gave up his life. He went to the cross for sinners like you and like me. He did it all. We did nothing. Did you feel the, the scandal in your bones? Look, if you would, at Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. And notice what Paul writes there. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Had Paul said that you can get to heaven by your own works, nobody would have cared. There would have been no scandal. He wouldn't have been persecuted. That makes perfect sense. That's not offensive. 
No, the offense of the cross is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Before you can appreciate Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, you need to understand all of Galatians. It's about the gospel. It's about this scandalous idea that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Salvation is a free gift from God. It's all his work. It's all his doing. And now that you see salvation is a gift of God, it's his work, we nonetheless need to start working. Remember, we are expecting each of the rooms in our house, beginning with the room with Galatians 6.10 written over the threshold. It's a verse that calls us to action, to do good to everyone. It's a call to work. How are we to think about our work as a Christian? Well, it's important to remember that our good works have a job. Our good works have a job. When you go to a restaurant, the most important job in that restaurant is the manager. After all, he hires the cooks. He makes sure the staff shows up on time. He makes sure the waiters get the orders right. Now, of course, the, the waiters really matter, right? The waiter is the one you interact with. The waiter is the one who brings you your food and refills your drink, who helps you if there's a problem. Well, our good works, like that waiter, have a job, right? They're like that waiter. They, they don't have the most important job. That's the Lord's doing. That's the Lord's job. Salvation is his work. But our work matters too. The best teachers know that truth can be abused. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is an excellent teacher. And he knew that some people might think if God is the one who saves, our works don't really matter. Paul knew that some might even say if salvation is all of God's work, if it's in God's hands, why should I bother working at all. I know there are many kids watching from home right now. I want this to make sense to you. I know this is something that you can easily understand. So suppose one night your mother is tucking you in and after she kisses you, you ask her a question. Mom, do you really love me? Well, your mom looks down to you and says, well, well of course I love you. And you reply, well, even when I don't clean my room? She smiles and says, yes, honey, even when you don't clean your room. Well, this makes you very happy. You drift asleep. The next day you wake up, you have breakfast, you do your schoolwork at the kitchen table because, of course, your school has been shut down. And then you go to your room to play. And an hour later, it looks like you have been playing with a tornado. Your room is a disaster. There are teddy bears in the laundry basket, little green army men scattered on the floor, monopoly on your bed. It's a mess. And that night, your mom tells you to clean your room. And you object. You say, Mom, you said you'd love me even if I didn't clean my room. Well, this time your mother looks at you sternly and says, yes, but no child of mine is going to live under my roof and ignore my instructions. You can't use your mother's love as an excuse to disobey. And that's what Paul wants the Galatians to understand. 
Good works don't make us God's children. But if we are God's children, if we love him, we will obey him. We won't use our freedom from the law to gratify the flesh. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Your flesh is the sinful part of you. It's the part of you that doesn't want to clean up your room. It's the part that doesn't want to work diligently at the kitchen table. For you adults, your flesh is that part of you that doesn't want to speak kindly about your boss. It's the part of you that doesn't want to joyfully endure trials. It's the part of you that doesn't want to love your neighbor. Your flesh wants Ben and Jerry's for dinner when you need broccoli. Your flesh wants another movie when you need to pray. Your flesh wants to sweep conflict under the rug when you really know that you need to be a peacemaker. Your flesh wants you to do what makes you most comfortable instead of doing that which makes you most useful. We must not use the gospel as an excuse to be lazy. And so for the rest of chapter 5 and really all of chapter 6, Paul is, is driving that point home. He's ending the letter of Galatians, making this crystal clear that Christians don't work less because of the gospel. Christians work more. Look at Galatians 5.22. Real Christians strive to walk by the Spirit, by practicing love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Real Christians will compassionately confront and restore sinners who fail. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Real Christians will bear one another's burdens. They will look out for one another in practical ways. Look at verse 6. Real Christians will share what they have with those who faithfully teach them the word of God. And Paul ends his letter by saying, real Christians don't just rejoice in the truth of the gospel. They live out the truth of the gospel by following the instructions of their Lord. Now, why is this so important? Because if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't work in the name of Christ. You have no reason to think that you will be saved on the day of judgment. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul's using farm language there. If you do the good, hard work of sowing seed, eventually you will reap a good 
large harvest. I had one of the best meals I ever had about five years ago when I visited my parents in Silverton, Oregon. They live on a couple of acres, and that year they devoted about half an acre to a garden, squash and beans and tomatoes and corn and and even fruit. They worked hard that year, planting seeds and tilling the soil and watering the ground and pulling weeds. My family and I got to enjoy their harvest. We got to feast at their table. Well, Christians look forward to a harvest too. It's a harvest of the best food provided by Christ himself. And when we sit at his table, we will know that we are there at his invitation. We know that ultimately it is his hard work that bought us a seat at that table. But Paul says, all who sit down at that table will have proved that Jesus worked for them as they sow to the Spirit before they ever reap eternal life. We don't work to get saved. We work because we are saved. We don't work so we can become God's children. We sow seed because we are God's children. Work doesn't make God love us any more than cleaning your room makes your mother love you. We work because God loves us. So our good works have a job. They prove we belong to the Lord. Our good works aren't the path to salvation. They are the proof of salvation. Real Christians care about more than good theology. They care about doing good every day. And that's why in verse 9, Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good. It's why he says, do not give up. He knows our temptation to weariness. He knows our temptation to give up. And he says, don't do it. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're now ready to finally dive into Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In light of that verse, let's end with this application. First, do good to everyone. Do good to everyone. This means you should make a difference in the lives of your neighbors, your, whether they're Muslim or Jewish, whether they are atheists or agnostics, whether they're friends or foes. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We serve others with the hope and the prayer that they will one day meet Christ and know Christ and glorify God as their Father. Peter wrote something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So just as God sends the rain and the sun on all, so we should strive to be a blessing to all. Sadly, today, Christians are, are often known for a particular brand of politics or a particular kind of evangelism. And these verses teach us that we ought to be known for our good works. Even when people say bad things about what we believe and we cling to what we believe because we understand the Bible to teach it, 
But even when people say bad things about the truths we utter with our lips, they should be able to highly prize the good we do with our hands. By the early 400s, so many years ago, the ancient city of Caesarea had already been ravaged by famine and by war. And then the plague came, a deadly pestilence, and all seemed lost. The healthy fled the city, leaving the sick to fend for themselves and die alone. Eusebius, who was one of the city's pastors, reported how Christians stayed behind to help. Listen to what he wrote. All day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. Such good works marked Christians in the Roman Empire. Non-Christians even began to gossip about the lives of the Christians. One witness said their deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. Eventually, even the, the Roman emperor, uh, the unbelieving Roman emperor took notice of what the Christians were doing. Emperor Julian wrote about Christians, they support not only their poor, but ours as well, ours as well. COVID-19 has disrupted our lives, but do you know what else it has done? It has opened a door into the lives of our neighbors. Some of you are on the front lines, in the hospitals, calming those who are anxious, showing the love of Christ by serving them in his name. Some of you have left notes in your neighbor's mailboxes offering help. Maybe you've started a group chat in your neighborhood to keep in touch. You've offered food and money for the needy. And Paul says, do good to everyone. Brothers and sisters, remember this. A Christian who makes no difference in the lives of his neighbors is like a rock that makes no ripples when it's thrown into a pond. Well, such a rock must be weightless or worthless, meaningless. What kind of rock would not cause a stir? Don't be a Christian like that. We are to do good to everyone. But notice what Paul says secondly, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is the church. Yes, do good to everyone, but make a special point of finding ways to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is a community of believers bound together by one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're united by the blood of Christ, and that bond is stronger than anything else. One day Jesus taught in a house to a packed room. They hung on every word. And apparently Jesus' mothers and brothers weren't there because they arrived late. And when they finally showed up, they must have been knocking at the door because one of Jesus' disciples went up to Jesus while he was teaching and told him that his mother and his brothers were there. Do you know how Jesus responded? Matthew 12, 49 and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We are bound most tightly to those who follow Jesus most closely, especially in the context of a local church. This reminds me of John 13, 34. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, we are told that loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is a distinguishing mark of being a Christian. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. When we knew that COVID-19 was about to hit us hard, my attention went to the church and not simply because I'm a pastor, though I am. My attention went to the church because I'm a, a Christian. I'm a Christian under the authority of God's word. I'm a Christian who understands that, yes, I must be a good neighbor. I want to be a good neighbor, but my priority has got to be the local church. I knew it would be weeks and weeks until we could gather again. Even when we are scattered, the church remains one family. We are brothers and sisters, and so it must be our delight and our duty to do good to one another. And that's why the elders have divided up the congregation to make sure every member heard from us. That's why we are live streaming the messages to make sure that every member has the opportunity to gain this way from the ministry of the word. That's why we're encouraging you to stay in touch with one another, again, as Chad did at the beginning of our service encouraging you to find ways to serve one another, to make sure that no one is forgotten. That's why we're asking the members of Mount Vernon to let us know if you have any needs, spiritual, physical, material. We are here under God's authority to help you to do good, especially to the household of faith. We live in an anti-institutional age, and for some, church membership can seem more like an administrative burden than a spiritual responsibility. It saddens me to see how church membership means so little in so many churches today. But membership should matter. And during this coronavirus, when we cannot meet, I have never been more thankful to have a membership directory, to know those whom God has especially put in my care and in the care of the other elders of this flock. I want to obey all of Galatians 6.10. Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So... Make a phone call today, uh, send a text, start a group chat, engage the brother or sister that you think might get left out. Use your directory. And when the coronavirus passes, and it will pass, carve out time for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is evidence 
It is evidence that you love God. I'll end then with a note of urgency. Third, do good today. Do good today. Look at how verse 10 begins. So then, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, do good to everyone. Now, let me tell you how I used to understand this verse. I thought it meant something like, when God opens a door, when the opportunity presents itself. In other words, if God just so happens to put someone needy in my way, whether it be a believer, an unbeliever, I need to be ready to help. I need to be prepared to help. I need to be eager to serve as I have opportunity. My flesh took that interpretation even further. I took it to me when it's convenient for me, when I can squeeze it into my calendar, I'll try. That's a horrible way to understand that verse. So what does, as we have opportunity, mean? Well, perhaps an illustration will help. Uh, this might come as a surprise to some of you, but I'm never going to play in the NBA. There are a number of reasons for this. Right now, you can see I'm only 5'9". That is a bit of a hindrance. I'm not particularly athletic, that's kind of a problem as well, but here's the clincher. I am too old to play in the NBA. Even if this were my goal, I am about 30 years too late. Even if I were 6'9 and very athletic, at my age, the door of opportunity to attempt serious basketball has closed. Many years ago, I missed the opportunity. Now look at Galatians 6.10. Paul is saying, do good now as you have opportunity. While you can, do good now. One day you will be dead. It will be too late for your good works to be evidence that you know God and that God knows you. It will be too late to sow to the Spirit. Now is the day. Now is the time. Do good now as you have opportunity. Do good now. Today, the door of opportunity is open, so don't waste it. Stop putting off your good work. Stop procrastinating. This is what Jesus meant in John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Night is coming. When you are not going to be able to give evidence of your profession of faith, night is coming. Today is the day. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially to those in the household of faith. So I began this message by asking you to take a tour of the room in your house with Galatians 6.10 inscribed on the threshold. What kind of renovation does that room need? Have you become so self-centered that doing good seems a little strange and even uncomfortable? It's not too late to change. It's still day. God has given us the opportunity. God has given us today. Let's do good to everyone, especially to the church. This is a hard word for, for many of us, especially as we've never been more disconnected from people in our lives. One could argue it's never been more difficult to do good to our neighbors when 
were loath to even knock on their doors. It's a hard message to remember that to be a Christian is to demonstrate evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. Yes, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that, that faith is never alone in the true Christian. It is always accompanied, followed by good works. How are you doing in this area? Would you spend a few moments now, even as you're sitting in your living room or wherever you are, to silently reflect, even to pray that God would forgive you for the ways that perhaps you've not used the gifts that he's given you well. Let's spend a few moments now in reflection and even in silent confession of our sin. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on our own hearts, we are aware that the flesh is alive and well. And though Christ has come in and defeated sin in our lives, we still struggle. We're not the men and the women that we want to be, not the men and the women that we ought to be. And we come before you at the end of this message simply to confess that to you, to confess that there are many good works that we could have done that we neglected to do. And we pray that you would forgive us for that, for those sins of, of omission. Now, Father, we want to grow in this area. We want to better glorify you by modeling what godly Christian behavior is. We don't in any way want to neglect the gospel, the offense of the cross where you save wretches like us. But Father, in light of having been saved, we pray that we would now live truly for your glory. Father, I lift up uh, any who might be watching now who've never really given their life to Christ. For whatever reason, maybe they've gone through the motions. They've let others think they're genuinely saved but they've never submitted in such a way that the entirety, every room in their house was now open for you to repair, to renovate, to change. They've never really given all of themselves to you. And we know that's what the gospel requires. And so, Father, I, I pray for them that wherever they are, they would humble themselves before you that they would repent and believe the good news of the gospel, that they might be able to say one day that you saved them when the coronavirus shut the world down. You are an amazing God, and we love you more than we love life itself. We ask you to help us to worship you as the church scattered in spirit and in truth, recognizing Christ and his word being our only sure foundation. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.